0: Please take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1, reading together verses 8 through 17. If you're visiting with us, we have just recently begun a new series in the book of Romans, and we are looking together at this passage in which Paul is recording his thanks and his prayer for the church in Rome. Hear God's word. Paul writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome." Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us again as we study his word. Our Father, we ask that your word would not return to you empty. You have told us in the scriptures that that is true, that is the way that you work. Your word accomplishes that which you purpose. It succeeds in the thing for which you send it. And so Lord, we ask that you would enable each one of us to have ears that hear, that wherever we might be this morning in relation to you, Father, would you speak to us? Would you convict us of our sin? Would you reveal the secrets of our heart that no one else sees? Come, we pray, by your power and change us. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. When I was in late elementary school and middle school in Baton Rouge growing up, we swam for a few years at a neighborhood pool called Terra. It was very much like uh, Briarwood. This was back in the good old days when there were high dives and when your mom could drop you off at the pool and you could stay there all day after swim team practice in the afternoon she'd pick you up. Uh, It was like Briarwood in the way that it was shaped uh, and it was like Briarwood that there was a kiddie pool, and you know the kiddie pools where the little kids learn how to swim, and uh, the, the pool is usually blue but a little bit greener right, than the other main pool, and eventually you graduate from the kiddie pool into the main pool. And if you've ever raised children at a pool that has a kiddie pool, then you know the tension and the struggle you feel when you are wanting to teach your child how to swim and how to be in the deep end or the shallow end that's deep to them. And, but they keep wanting to go back to the kiddie pool. They keep wanting to, to have their feet touch the bottom of the kiddie pool and not be fearful and, and feel out of control there in the main pool. Now, I wonder if, as you think about the gospel, uh, when you hear the word the gospel, I wonder if you think about the kiddie pool. You think about something that's for babies, right? baby Christians or, or not Christians yet. Uh, you think about something that you graduate from, that you move out of and, and into the, the real pool, the big pool. Right? And, and maybe if you're immature uh, and, and you're struggling, then yeah, maybe you need to go back to the kiddie pool, back to the gospel, because that's for people who are struggling. Right? But if you're a mature Christian, right, then you can swim in the big pool. Now, of course, the Bible teaches us that the gospel is not the kiddie pool, is it? It's not a, a separate, different body of water that Christians graduate from. Rather, the Bible tells us that the gospel is like a zero-entry pool. It's like the ocean. It, it begins, to be sure, with inches of water, but it grows deeper and deeper the more progressively farther out we go. The gospel is not just for unbelievers or new believers. It's for all believers, We saw it last week. We'll see it again today. As Tim Keller has memorably put it, it's not the ABCs of the Christian life. It is the A to Z. All of us, wherever we might find ourselves in relation to God this morning, need to hear the gospel. And the text before us, Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15, particularly that last verse, uh, speaks beautifully and clearly to this effect. I'll not forget the experience. I don't remember when it was, but at some point during college or seminary, I remember coming across this passage, whether I read it or heard it preached, I don't remember. But I, I do remember having my, my mind, my my understanding of the gospel exploded, both in the sense of, of blown up and disintegrated and expanded. I remember thinking, wait a minute, Here's Paul. He's saying that that he has been praying that he would be able to to come to the Roman church. He's telling us here that he longs to see these Roman Christians, and that he had often intended to come to them, but had been prevented thus far. And he says in verse 15 that he's eager to preach the gospel to them. And you scratch your head and you think, wait a minute. Why does he need to preach the gospel to Christians, to the church? Why would he want to preach the gospel to people who've already heard the gospel? Of course, as I came to realize, my view of the gospel was too small. It was like a kiddie pool rather than a zero-entry pool. It was a small view of the gospel and of our need for it. And so this morning, I want us to look at this text and to hear again, why does the church of Jesus Christ need to hear the gospel over and over and over again? There are two reasons, and then we'll make several applications at the end. But the first reason is this, there are unbelievers in the church. Why does the church need to hear the gospel? Because there are unbelievers in the church. Now, some commentators would look at verse 15 and would say when Paul writes that he's eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, that he's referring to his readers generically and generally, right? That he's just looking at them as Romans, not as Christians. He's saying that what he means is he's eager to preach the gospel to evangelize the non-Christians who are in Rome. And certainly, Paul does want to preach the gospel to the lost who live in Rome, just as he went to Greece and preached in Athens and the Areopagus. Paul would love to come to Rome and preach in the Roman Forum and in the marketplaces. Certainly, non-Christians are a part of the harvest, the fruit that he wants to reap among them. But Paul has not been using the word you in a general sense. He's been using it in a very particular sense to refer to the church, to those who have been called to belong to Christ, called as saints. And what he writes in this letter is not just a summary of what he's gonna to say to people outside the church, but what he wants those inside the church to hear as well. And why does Paul want people inside the church to hear the gospel? Because Paul knows that when the church gathers on the Lord's day in corporate worship, unbelievers are in their midst. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that outsiders, unbelievers, those who do not profess faith in Christ, who maybe have not yet professed faith in Christ, will be in the church. Perhaps it's covenant children who haven't come to saving faith yet. Perhaps it's neighbors that you've brought with you who don't know Jesus and you want them to hear Jesus preached and proclaimed of his death and his resurrection. Or maybe it's people who just walk in off the street who have no idea why they're here or how they got here, but they're here to hear the gospel. Paul says that through the preaching of the word, the gospel will convict the hearts of those who are dead in sin. The gospel will call them to account. The gospel will disclose the secrets of their heart. and They will fall on their faces and worship God, declaring that he is truly here among us. And so Paul knows that when he... Were he to step into a a church in Rome, he knows that there would be people who don't know Jesus from the outside who have come in who need to hear the gospel. But Paul also knows that when he steps into a Roman church and he sees the people who are gathered before him, that some of those people, even who profess faith in Jesus Christ, are not believers. And they need to hear the gospel. Notice in verse 9 how Paul speaks of serving God and serving God in the gospel of his Son, but he says, with my Spirit. That is, by implication, there is a way of serving God where a spirit is not engaged at all, where you are serving God merely formally and externally, not from the heart, not with the Spirit. There are people here this morning who have never been born again, Their so-called faith is a hypocritical faith, a dead faith. You wear a mask of religion, for you religion is a hobby, it's a sport, it's something that you play at. Jesus tells us in Matthew 13, the peril of the wheat and the weeds, that Satan actively sows amongst the children of God his own offspring, sons of the devil, sons of the enemy, says Jesus, who grow up as weeds among the wheat of the church. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that there will always be so-called Christians, false professors, wolves in sheep clothing, who are not Christians at all, who bear no fruit. And there will be people who think they are Christians, who do things for Jesus. But they are deceived. They are ignorant of their own state. They don't understand the gospel of grace at all, and they don't do the will of the Father. And so Jesus will say to you at the last day, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Paul's gonna tell us later in this letter that not all Israel is Israel. That is, not everyone who professes faith in Jesus, not everyone who belongs to the covenant people of God, the church is truly and sincerely a believer. And oftentimes, as John will tell us in 1 John chapter 2, those who profess faith in Christ, they go out from us because they were never of us. So Paul would say, I preach the gospel in the church of Jesus Christ because there are unbelievers in the church. Some of you this morning are unbelievers, and some of you know that, and you acknowledge that and others you don't know it or don't acknowledge it. But to wherever you might find yourself, if you are here and you don't know Jesus, if you are here and you don't serve him with your spirit, Even if you've been a member of a church, even this church, for all your life, you need to hear the gospel. Even if everyone thinks that you're a Christian and no one would think anything otherwise, you know that God has never changed your heart. And you need to have the secrets of your heart disclosed. You need to be called to an account by the word of God and the preaching of the gospel. You need to be made to see that there is nothing you can do to save yourself. All of your good deeds are as filthy rags. You need someone to save you from the outside, to give you a righteousness that is truly pleasing to God, not the righteousness you have manufactured and and sewn together that's a bundle of filthy rags. You see, many times it is possible, even in the church, to have, as one pastor has put it, truth that has secured the homage of the intellect but has never gripped and controlled the affections of the heart. You've wondered in awe, perhaps, of the truth that you hear, but you've never worshipped in response to that truth. But if that is you this morning, you are in the right place. And we want you to keep coming back, because what you are going to hear, Lord willing, from this pulpit, from Sunday schools, from Bible studies, from small groups, you're going to hear the gospel over and over and over again. We're going to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ so that you might be saved. And the reason we're going to proclaim it is because even if you weren't here, you who don't know Jesus, Jesus' people, believers in Jesus, would still need to hear it. Why? Why do believers need to hear the gospel? Well, that brings us to the second reason why Paul wanted to preach the gospel to the church, because believers need to be strengthened and encouraged in their faith. Look at verses 11 and 12. For I long to see you, Paul writes, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now well, It's difficult to know exactly what Paul's referring to when he says he wants to impart some spiritual gift to the Romans. Commentators differ. The indefinite language makes it hard to nail it down. Is it something specific or if it's just some general benefit that, uh, that, that comes as Paul brings the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit? But while it's difficult to know to what Paul is referring with that little phrase, some spiritual gift, it's not difficult to see why he wants to bring it. Why does he want to bring the gospel to the church at Rome? He tells us there to strengthen you, to strengthen you in your weakness, to encourage you in your discouragement. And what is more strengthening? What is more encouraging than to hear the gospel unfolded and unpacked, to hear what God has done for sinners through Jesus Christ, to hear what he is doing, what he's going to do, to hear of Jesus who has lived for us and died for us and risen again from the dead for us. You see, the contents of this letter would have been read aloud and the Christians would have heard it and meditated on it and talked about it and and, and the elders would have taught and preached about it. Paul wanted to preach the gospel to believers. Believers who, as he says there in verse 8, had already believed their faith was proclaimed in all the world and it had gone viral but he still know, knew that they, wanted, they needed to hear the gospel. They needed to hear of the person of Jesus. They needed to hear of the finished work on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. They needed to hear of sins forgiven, of righteousness imputed and reckoned to our account, of the power of sin broken through union with Jesus Christ, of sovereign election, of persevering grace, preserving grace. This was how Paul knew that Christians become ever more established and strengthened and encouraged in their faith. This is why the gospel needs to be preached to you who are already believers, who have been believers all your life, perhaps. Because we never attain perfect understanding of the gospel. We never hit a point where we don't need to hear of the grace of God. We never hit a point where we have figured it all out or, or where we are applying it perfectly in every way. We need to be strengthened. We need to be encouraged. And so we need to hear the gospel. Think of an older piece of furniture that you have in your house. Maybe it's uh, an antique. Maybe it's something delivered to you from your family down through the ages, down through the generations. It means a lot to you. Maybe it's just something from the 70s, right? Think of some older piece of furniture that you have. I imagine, chances are, that piece of furniture is not in the best of shape. Maybe it's creaky, it's rickety. The the screws are coming out. The the nails are popping up out of their nail holes. It's not as firm and solid. The joints are loose. Maybe to the point even where you're telling your kids, like, yeah, we don't use that anymore. Don't sit on that. Don't touch that. Because it's it's a family heirloom, but we just have to look at it now. We can't use it. What do you want to do if you want to get it to the point where it can be used? Well, you've got to tighten those joints. You've got to glue them up again. You've got to screw them in. You've got to put brackets. You've got to drive the nails even deeper. You have to strengthen that piece of furniture. In the same way, Paul is saying the gospel comes and it holds us together, it, it binds us firmly together in our faith. It strengthens and encourages us. And that's what Paul wanted to do for the Roman Christians. Now, of course, the illustration breaks down because none of us come to this world as a brand new piece of furniture. That is, none of us come into the Christian life without any you know, shaking or, or creaking. We're born into the Christian life as newborn babes, in whom Christ is being formed within us. We're not tight and strong. We're weak from the very get-go. And yes, we do grow in strength, but even in our strongest moments, we are still weak. And so we need to hear the gospel all the way through the Christian life. That's why Paul's writing this letter. That's why Paul is eager to be in person in Rome, to preach the gospel to these believers, to strengthen them, and to encourage them. Now, As we think about what that strengthening, what that encouraging looks like, Paul, here in this passage, sort of indirectly, gives us two big areas of of the Christian life where the gospel does indeed strengthen our faith and encourage us. The gospel enables us to, on the one hand, pray humbly and boldly, and on the other hand, to approach other people humbly and boldly and i want you to see this as we seek to apply this truth that we all need to hear the gospel but look at how paul in the way he speaks of his prayer and his thanksgiving and his ministry look at the way he shows us how the gospel makes us humble bold people first with prayer In this passage, as Paul does most of his letters, he is reporting on his thanksgiving, his prayer for these Roman Christians. And from these words, we see that the gospel teaches us to pray humbly. First, it reminds us that we can only come to God in prayer, even in thanksgiving, through Jesus Christ. Do you see that in verse 8? Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. We do not come to God in prayer and our own strength, our own merits, our own righteousness, because of anything that we've done, anything that makes us worthy, as if God is, should be pleased and proud to have us coming to him, right? to, to coming and having an audience with him or he with us. No, we come in prayer through Jesus Christ, our mediator, who chapter 5 will tell us has given us this access before the Father, who chapter 8, Paul will say, he is ever living to intercede for us as our great high priest. We come In prayer humbly through a mediator. But second, notice that Paul says the gospel enables us to pray humbly because it reminds us that the existence of saving faith itself is something for which we must thank God and God alone. You see what Paul is thankful for. He's thankful for the faith of the Romans. Not just that it's proclaimed in all the world, but because they even have faith in the first place. Paul well, thanks God for that. He doesn't thank the Romans, he doesn't congratulate the Romans, as if somehow these Christians figured it out and were smarter and wiser than the rest of the Romans and know that they needed to believe in Jesus. And so they worked really hard and they manufactured faith, whereas the other people who didn't know Jesus hadn't done that yet. Good for you, Paul say. No, no, Paul is thanking God for their faith. The existence of their faith has nothing to do with them Faith is a gift of grace, a free grace. It's something that God had worked in them, had, had by his Holy Spirit created in them. God gets the glory. You see, the gospel strips away our pride and tells us that faith is not a work that we have accomplished in our own strength. Faith is something that we must thank God for. It's a gift of grace. Salvation is of God from beginning to end. If you ever, ever have read J.F. Packer's little book evangelism the sovereignty of God he points out that every time you are on your knees you believe that God is sovereign and gracious because you thank him for your salvation and you pray that he will save other people why because you know that he alone can do it and he alone has does it if you has has done it if you have been saved and so the gospel strips us of pride and makes us to pray humbly but we see a third way it makes us humble by leading us to submit all of our desires to the Lord and to his will. Look at verse 10. Paul speaks of asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to the Romans. Where did Paul learn this humble submission? He learns it most clearly, doesn't he? Through Jesus, the Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane, who there as he was facing the cross and the prospect of suffering, In the place of God's people, the elect of those that the Father had given to him, he cries out to his Father, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup, the cup of God's wrath that he was about to drink for his people in their place, he says, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, Jesus humbly resigned himself as the Son to the will of the Father, for our salvation, suffering, enduring the shameful death of the cross. And as we meditate upon that grace and the gospel, what happens but that we are enabled to manifest the same spirit of resignation with the Apostle Paul if somehow by God's will. We submit ourselves to the providence of God. The gospel works that in our prayers. It works it so that we come humbly but the gospel also enables us to pray boldly, not just humbly, but boldly. Look at the way Paul addresses God in verse 8. My God. He could call him my father, that he's already said in verse 7. How can God have such a how can Paul have such a bold, sort of audacious approach to God as if somehow he owns God? Well, of course, he doesn't own God, but God is indeed his God, his covenant God, his father. We are in a covenant relationship with him. He belongs to us, and we belong to him. He has made promises to us through Jesus Christ, and he will always keep his promises. And so Paul can pray with boldness. You are coming to a king, said John Newton. Large petitions with you bring. You are coming to a father, a father who delights to hear his children. So do you see how the gospel makes us bold in prayer? It also leads us to keep praying, to not lose heart. Here is Paul, even as Jesus went to the cross with a fixed purpose to see God's will be done, but that did not stop him from praying and crying out to spare him from the sufferings of the cross. Paul here earnestly pleads with God to allow him to come to Rome. He doesn't know If it's God's will for him to come to Rome, that's why he's saying, if somehow by God's will, I might be allowed to come to Rome. And he certainly has seen over time that his desire and his requests have been frustrated by God repeatedly the providence of God has not allowed him, has prevented him, he says in verse 13. And we don't know exactly what Paul's referring to there. Maybe it's uh, the fact that he's had such a a big ministry in the the area of Greece and and Asia Minor and hasn't had time to come to Rome yet. Maybe it's that, as we read in Acts chapter 18, in 49 AD, uh, Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome and so Paul wasn't allowed to come there. Maybe Satan has hindered, we have no idea. But we know that Paul, even though his desires and his requests had been denied and frustrated, he doesn't stop praying boldly. He doesn't stop desiring eagerly to come to Rome. The gospel has led Paul to be a bold man because he knows that his desires to come to Rome are gospel-centered, gospel-motivated desires. He wants to preach the gospel there. He wants to see people converted to Jesus there. He wants to see converts grow in their faith He can resign himself completely to the will of God. But his bold requesting and earnest pleading is not incompatible with this uncertainty as to the final outcome. We're going to see the same thing in chapter 10, verse 1, when Paul, who is just in chapter 9, written of the, the, the sovereign electing grace of God. That God has a people that he has sovereignly chosen and saved according to his purposes. But then in chapter 10, verse 1, Paul can say, Brothers, it is my heart's desire and my prayer for the Jews, my fellow countrymen, that they might be saved. Knowing that God had chosen some did not leave, lead Paul to stop praying for all. He prayed for them. He earnestly desired their salvation. The gospel makes us bold. Bold to pray. Pray in humility, but pray with boldness. We pray through the finished work of Jesus Christ for gospel opportunities, for the salvation of God to go forth, for people to be saved. But we do that humbly, knowing that we are finite sinners. We don't know what's best. We don't know how God's going to work. We don't know the timing that God's going to work in. Some of you have children that do not know the Lord, they've been raised in the church, and they have rejected the faith perhaps. Or they are struggling, you can see them, they, are, ah, they, they know the answers, but they are not embracing the truth of the gospel. Your heart's desire should be like Paul's, you pray boldly for them, even though you don't know if it's God's will that they will be saved or not. But that doesn't stop you from pleading with God for their salvation. Think about it, Paul praying for God to bring him to Rome. Do you remember how he gets to Rome? He gets to Rome as a prisoner of Rome. Do you remember that? At the end of the book of Acts, he makes it to Rome as a prisoner. He's in a boat, just like, like he would have been coming there on his own, but he's in chains. That's not how Paul probably expected God to answer his prayers. Oh yeah, you're going to make it to Rome, but it's going to be as a prisoner. But Paul submitted his life to the Lord, and he prayed boldly as a, res- as a result of that. In the same way, let us pray humbly and boldly. But there's another Application that we see here in this text, the gospel enables us to approach not just prayer humbly and boldly, but other people humbly and boldly. Do you see the gospel humility that Paul's words express? When Paul declares that he wants to come and strengthen the church in Rome, notice that he immediately states that the spiritual benefit is not just going to be one way, it's not just going to be from Paul to them. But what does he say? He says, That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours. In mine. He knows that he will be strengthened and encouraged by their faith, by the gospel that they share with him, just as much as they will be strengthened and encouraged by the gospel he shares with them. I love how Calvin puts it so beautifully. He writes, there is no one so void of gifts in the church of Christ who is not able to contribute something to our benefit, but we are hindered by our envy, by our pride from gathering such fruit from one another. How easy it is How easy it is to look down on other people who are not as far advanced, perhaps, as we might be in the Christian faith, who have not yet attained, perhaps, the degree of righteousness the Lord has worked in your heart. How easy it is to look down on them, to be unteachable, to think that other people have nothing to offer you, that you are self sufficient. You have all that you need in your own experience or in your own time of personal Bible reading. You don't need the church, you don't need other Christians. Yet the gospel humbles us to acknowledge our need as it did for Paul. It reminds us that we are sinners all of our lives. Though we have been saved and set apart and called to be saints in Jesus Christ, we are sinners, sinners still. None of us ever arrives at a point of not needing the mutual encouragement, the benefit that comes from other believers. So you see how the gospel humbles us. It humbles us in the way we relate to other Christians say, look, I've got something that I can learn from you. Whether you're the oldest, most mature Christian in the room or the youngest Christian in the room, you have something that you can give to other people. That's a humbling thing to acknowledge. But notice the, hum- the humbleness, the humility that Paul exhibits here in the way that he brings the gospel to all types of people. Look at verse 14. He says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And these Designations are Paul's way of, of including the entirety of Gentile humanity. Those who embraced Greek language and culture, the Greeks, and those who did not, the, the barbarians. Not barbarians with a Viking helmet on, but the barbarians was the way that they spoke of people who didn't speak Greek. They didn't have the Greek culture, the Greek language. There were Greeks and non Greeks. There were the learned, the wise, the philosophers, and the unlearned, the uneducated, the foolish. And Paul says the gospel is for all of them. The gospel humbles our pride so that we don't look down on anyone because of some human designation. What do we have? What do you have that you did not receive? However you might describe yourself, how is it anything that you in your own strength have accomplished? God has given it to you. And so the gospel enables us to humbly bring the gospel to all types of people. The gospel is for all nations. It's for all classes, all cultures, all ethnicities, all languages, all education levels, all levels of ability. Some with great physical ability, some with no physical ability at all. Some with great mental ability, some with no mental ability at all. The gospel makes the church a place for all types of people, old and young, men and women, boys and girls, rich and poor Red and yellow, black and white, brown, Asian, Hispanic, African, European, Indian, the gospel is for all. Whether you live in a million-dollar mansion or a shack or no house at all, whether you are a Ph.D. or whether you have never graduated from high school, whether you're a cultural elite or a cultural Philistine, see, Paul is saying, I want to bring the gospel to you, to all of you. If the gospel is true, and anyone can be saved. If the gospel has saved me, if it saved you, anyone can be saved. We're no better than anyone. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, we say, and it's true. Every Christian is a sinner saved by grace, and every non-Christian is a sinner who might one day be saved by grace. And so, in humility, we approach people the way that Paul approached people here. But don't you see how that gospel that humbles us also emboldens us? It impels us to approach people, to bring the gospel, whether they are unbelievers or believers. Paul, yes, is under a unique obligation as an apostle, the apostle of the Gentiles, to bring the gospel to the world. But there's a sense in which all of us as believers in Jesus Christ have an obligation. We are a debtor to bring the gospel to the lost and to the found, that the lost might be converted, that the found might be strengthened and encouraged. The more you meditate upon the benefits that are yours in Jesus Christ, the more you meditate upon all that God has done for you in the gospel of his son, then the more you are motivated to want to share those benefits with others so that Jesus' name might be glorified. You, You will want to evangelize the lost. You will want to speak a word for Christ. You'll want to encourage and strengthen other believers. You'll want them to know and to remember the joys of sins forgiven, of righteousness credited freely, by grace through faith. And so the question that Paul wants to put before us is, does this knowledge of the gospel manifest itself in your life by an approach to others, a humble approach to be sure, but a bold approach that you too are eager to speak a word. You too desire to be involved in the lives of other people. You too want to preach and to speak and to live out the gospel in the world and in the church. So this is why Paul was so eager to preach the gospel to the church, because there were unbelievers in the church and there were believers in the church who needed to be strengthened and encouraged in their faith so that the lost might be found, and that the found might be transformed and strengthened and established and fixed and spurred on to love and good deeds. This is why he writes this letter. If you read the email that came out, our weekly email that's we sent out Friday, We put a, I put a quote from Martin Luther there, a great quote. Listen to it again. Luther writes, The gospel teaches me what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. That is, that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel wills me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists most necessary Is it, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually? Don't you love Luther? Thank you, Dr. Luther, for your subtle way of putting it. Beat it into their heads continually. Beat the gospel into our heads. Just knead it in with all of your might because we are prone to wander. We are prone to forget what God has done for us in Christ. We are prone to be puffed up in pride, to look down on others with contempt. We need to hear the gospel over and over and over again. Again, some of you need to hear it for the first time and to be saved, be born again to a living hope through Jesus. But some of you have heard it a million times. And as we're about to sing, you should be longing to hear it a million and one, and two, and three. May God make it so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your gospel grace. We thank you for your unfailing love in Jesus Christ, your covenant mercies that are new every morning. Lord, help us as we walk our way through this glorious letter of Paul. Help us to be strengthened and encouraged in our faith if we belong to you. Lord, if for those who are here this morning and do not know Jesus, Lord, would you convict them? Would you call them to account before your holiness? Would you disclose the secrets of their heart? Lord, would you cause them to fall on their face, to know that you alone are God and they are sinners in need of a Savior. Father, we pray that they would see the beauty of Jesus Christ and his finished work and they would look to him and him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. Father, come, we pray. Grow us all up. Make us to be humble. Make us to be bold. Help us, O Lord, to pray in this manner, to go out into the world, into the church in this manner as we relate to one another. Lord, would you transform your people by your truth and by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.